Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you for the, for the institute, the 
for, for letting me come here and publicize uh, a, a traveler and writer who's probably less well-known than, than, than many, Apollo people Baghdadi. And I, I, I talked about his curious gaze in the, in the title of the talk, and he was curious in many senses. He was curious in the sense that he liked looking at things, but he was also a curious man, an unusual man. He was a physician, uh, a medic, but he was many things besides that. So, um, thank you to the Institute for letting me come here and publicize him, revive his memory. And thank you to the Library of Arabic Literature for, for bringing me here as a fellow to this sort of wonderful um, setting. It's, it's like half being in half an Oxbridge College and half a sort of luxurious hotel. Um, and it has something of the madrasa about it, but a very, very high-class madrasa. Um, something like the a sort of up-to-date version of the Bu'anania in, in Fez, if you know that, you know, with the sort of um, sides and the rooms and the water and, and all these this, this beautiful setting for learning. Um, something like that, or maybe the, the, the Mustanteria in, in Baghdad, to which we will return later uh, for a reason. Um, so, this setting could not be more different from the setting where the two of us met, as you said, 20 odd years ago, and where I worked on my edition and translation of this book, Kitab al Isadu al Atibar. And I worked on it in, in Sana'a, um, in the old city, in my house, uh, which is one of those little uh, it's, it's one of those tower houses. It's, it's quite a small tower, but it's tall and thin. Um, and I worked on it through really the worst of the war. Uh, so while the missiles were raining down and people I knew were being killed, and uh, it, it, it was quite horrific in many, many ways. So outside my window, I had this sort of horror uh, which I was looking onto. And then I was working on this book, uh, part of which is, is horrific, uh, as you'll find out later. So I had the window onto the present, onto Yemen, onto the war, and this window onto the past, the horrors of the past. And strangely, I, I don't want to say that two negatives made a positive, but I think because Abdul Latif and I were both witnessing what you could call societal collapse in different ways. It, it, it sort of brought me quite close to him, in a sense. And uh, we, we were talking, we, we had a very interesting conference, Library of Arabic Literature Conference last week, and, and, and we talked a lot about things like this. And it struck me that what's important for me in translating is a kind of, having a kind of empathy with the person that you're, you're working on. And the fact that we were both watching horrors somehow um, brought this strange empathy into the, into the picture. But I, I, I won't talk about Yemen in the present. I'll, I'll talk about Egypt in the, um, in the very early 13th century. Uh, and I'll talk about the man who wrote this book and observed it with his curious gaze. Um, and wrote this book in Cairo. The, um, the book, to, to translate the title in full, the book of edification and admonition, things I witnessed and events personally observed in the land of Egypt. So uh, obviously that's a bit long, which is why we ended up calling it uh, a physician on the Nile, a description of Egypt in the journal of the, a journal of the famine years. Um, by the way, this may very well be in his own handwriting. Uh, different people have different opinions. I, I think it might be. But just to say, to tell you what I'll talk about tonight, uh, I'll, I'll give you a bit of background to Abdul Latif and to his book, and then I'll tell you how I became interested in it, which, which I did quite a long time ago, and how that sort of contributed to what what I call that empathy, that translatorial empathy. Um, and then I, I, I'll sort of whiz through the two parts, uh, the edification 
and the admonition uh, and, and how they're connected because they're very, very different but they are connected in strange ways. And then I'll go on to talking about why the book isn't just a sort of curiosity. Uh, you know, we often read travellers and, uh, and, and descriptive books and descriptive geography, geographies and sort of think of it as, oh, it's a very interesting picture of the past. But um, in this case, I, I believe strongly it's more than a curiosity and it has an importance to us today. Uh, perhaps even it has a, um, a very old-fashioned word or unfashionable word. It, it might even have a, a moral to it. Um, and then finally, I'll wind up by talking a bit about Abdul Latif's uh, very surprising afterlife. And, um, yeah, talking about afterlives, um, Robert Irwin, who's uh, one of our other Library of Arabic Literature translators and uh, one of these sort of contemporary polymaths and uh, a great guy, he, he talked about translation, wrote about it, and said that translation is like a seance with the dead. You know, a seance where you sit around the table and you... you um, uh, you bring the spirits of the dead into the room. And that's definitely what it's like for me. Um, I don't want to be too whimsical about this, but I, would, I will come back to this later. And I kind of half expected when I was sitting there in my house in Sana that I would hear a voice. Um, so, yeah, I will come back to that because it is very strange. And I'll come back to the strange connection between Abdul Latif and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of, uh, well, most famously, the Sherlock Holmes stories. But, okay, let's start with, with Abdul Latif's own life. He, he was born in, in Baghdad in 1162 in um, a place he called Darb al-Faluzaj, which also means something like Pudding Lane. There's a pudding lane, and isn't it where the Great Fire of London started? But there's one, or there was one in Baghdad as well, and that's where he was born. And he was born when Baghdad was really a shadow of its former self in, in 1162. Uh, Ibn Jubayr, one of the travellers that you mentioned, Morris, in your introduction, he went there in the 1180s. Uh, and, and, and said nothing remains of it but its famous name. Uh, and, it, and it really was in the doldrums at that time. So Abdul Latif went off, uh, as some of you have here, uh, to, to study. And, and of course, the Rehla fi Talab al the journey in search of, of, of knowledge, was, was, was a, a very important thing at the time. But it was particularly important if you came from Baghdad. Uh, where, where things were not so so lively in the, in the intellectual sense. And so he went off, he set off in search of, of knowledge and enlightenment. And I want you to keep in mind this image of knowledge as enlightenment. It's, it's a very obvious metaphor. Uh, but Abdul Latif himself wrote elsewhere, wrote about knowledge. Knowledge sheds a brightness, a brilliance that both illuminates and reveals its bearer, as when someone walks with a firebrand in a dark night. And it's, uh, in Arabic it's lovely, that last phrase, كَمَنْ يَمْشِي بِمَشْعَلٍ فِي لَيْلٍ مُدَلْتُمْ كَمَنْ يَمْشِي بِمَشْعَلٍ فِي لَيْلٍ مُدَلْتُمْ So, this, this firebrand, this torch of knowledge, it, it's obviously a very enduring metaphor. I, I, I went to, um, I, I did my undergraduate degree at Oxford, and the, the college I went to, Trinity, it, it had um, stone urns all along the, 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 the roofs of the college with sort of copper flames of knowledge, firebrands of knowledge coming out, thanks to Sir Christopher Wren, the great architect. And, of course, uh, is, is there one here? I can't see one, but the symbol of NYU. There you are. Thank you. <laughs> it's the flaming 
the flaming torch of knowledge. So, uh, th- th- this has a particular importance for us tonight because uh, th- think, think of the, the carrier of the torch of knowledge on the dark night and the way that the torch can reveal horrors, but at the same time, the way that it casts out the darkness. So off he went. He went to Palestine. Uh, he met Saladin, as one does. Um, but more important, more importantly for him, he met Al-Tadi al-Fadl, who was Saladin's sort of um, right-hand man, a very well-connected scholar. And Al-Tadi al-Fadl gave him uh, letters of introduction to Cairo. So he went to Cairo and he met people like uh, Musa ibn Maymun, Maimonides, the famous, very famous Jewish scholar, and, and, and others. But the, the, the scholar that he talked about most uh, was called Ashara'i, hardly known. I think Shaukat identified him, Shaukat Kurawa, one of our colleagues, but, but he's hardly known at all. But for Abdul Latif, this Ashara'i was like, like a sort of guru because he, he took him back. Um, he says in his autobiography, to a kind of um, uh, primitive Aristotelianism. Uh, and, 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 you know, Aristotle was, 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 was big um, for so many Arab intellectuals, and, but, but he kind of gained these accretions over the centuries. And Abdul Latif was one of the people who was looking to go back to the, the beginnings of, of what uh, Aristotle thought. And um, he, he, he did go back to the beginning. He went back to, to, to the importance of, of, of what we, we call autopsy, uh, which in, obviously it means looking at a dead body mostly these days, but it, it really means looking for yourself, ayan uh, in Arabic, and looking at, at, at phenomena, um, at, at the sort of visible outward appearances of things, and forming hypotheses and testing them and uh, you know, obviously we're not yet at the, what we can call the scientific method, but look at this. Uh, wire jawbone. Um, how many parts does it have, if you disregard the teeth? Uh, well, Galen, the ancient um, uh, physician and anatomist, was convinced that it had two parts and that there was a join in the middle. And Abdul Latif said, no, it's got one part. So he set, out, he set out to disprove Galen when he was in Egypt. And he noticed that um, you could actually sort of root up mummies, lots and lots of them. And he started doing this. And in the end, he looked at 2,000 jawbones. Uh, I think not, not altogether on his own, but with the help of colleagues and students. And he said not a, not a single one of them had a joint in the middle. So he did that to disprove Galen. Uh, now, if that's not empir- empiricism, uh, I don't know what is. Uh, and, and it seems to be really quite unique uh, in, uh, for, for, for the time. Even more importantly for us, he looked at these things. Um, uh, these are sacrums or, or sacra. Uh, and Galen said that they were formed of various parts. Uh, I don't know if you can see, you know, well, they obviously are formed of parts up there. Um, but this one seems to be in one part. And again, he was saying, oh, Galen was wrong. Uh, the sacrum is formed of one part. It's, it's the part at the bottom of the, the spine. Um, and so he did something similar. He looked at lots of sacrums or sacra. Uh, and he found that some of them were in several parts and some of, some of them were in one part. So he said, I don't know. I had this hypothesis, but I couldn't prove it. And I'm not sure if I'm right or if I'm wrong. Now, that is an absolutely modern attitude because certainty is, is, is pre-scientific. I know it because somebody's told me, or because I feel it's right, but actually going and looking at things and disproving yourself, that is a, a, a really the basis of the scientific method. So, I would say that 800 years ago, he was 
employing the sort of techniques that we only think of as, as really appearing with people like Bacon at the beginning of the 17th century. Um, so, yeah, certainty is, is pre-scientific, doubt is scientific. And um, so go, going back to Aristotle, he saw himself, Abdullah, he saw himself as, as, as the carrier of a torch in a sort of intellectual relay that went from Aristotle through Galen, through uh, Arabic writing scholars, um, up to his present day. And he said somewhere else, knowledge moves from nation to nation and from land to land. And keep that in mind as well. But he always went back to Aristotle. And he quotes Aristotle, a lovely, beautiful passage of Aristotle in um, in, in his book that I translated. And I want to read it. In everything in the world of nature, there is something to be marveled at. We ought therefore to strive to understand the natural characteristics of every single species of living creature, and to be aware that in all creatures there is something of these characteristics that is noble. The reason for this innate virtue is this that nothing formed by nature is ever devoid of some purpose or other. Nor do natural forms turn up by chance or result from luck. No. Everything that exists by virtue of nature can only exist for something. I mean to contribute to a state of perfection. And as such, it has gained its rightful place, its due rank, and its proper merit. So, that, that sort of all-encompassing holistic view uh, it greatly affected um, Abdul-Latif, and he took it over, he took it on board in its entirety. But he, he, he really moved it into, a, into an Islamic setting, and he saw that light of knowledge, of course, as coming from, from God. Uh, and so, almost immediately on top of that, he, he celebrates the cosmos and looking at everything, uh, in these words, which are touched by, um, they're, they're very beautiful in the original, and they end with a, a Quranic quotation. Blessed is he, blessed is God, by whose power the manifest forms of all existent things derive their being, and by whose will they are in motion or at rest, in the execution of whose command fulfilled in themselves these beings delight, rejoicing in their own proximity, to the presence of his sanctity, whose unity is affirmed by their plurality and whose eternity is avowed by their mutability. And there is not a thing but it proclaims his glory. So he, he, he's taken this, this sort of panoramic, panoptic gaze of Aristotle where you have to look at everything from, from worms to, to whales and, and the stars and he has trans transferred it into an Islamic setting. And he looks, um, you know, what, what do we say in Arabic? Minasara ilasraya, from the earth beneath our feet to the, the Pleiades in heaven. And, and this sort of overwhelmingly curious gaze at everything, it produced so many works. There's a bibliography that's contemporary to him, and it lists, it lists 173 titles, 53 on medicine, 48 on philosophy, uh, and there are more that aren't on that list that we still have today. So, okay, let, let's go back to the Egypt book and talk a bit about why he wrote it, uh, because even though Baghdad was in decline, uh, the, the, the Abbasid Caliph of the time, and Nasser, was, was trying to revive the Caliphate and its prestige. And Abdul Latif saw himself as, as traveling through the, the Caliph's realms, his, his um, nominal realms at least, and he wanted to describe them for the Caliph and, and serve the Caliph and thereby serve God. So that, that's really his stated aim for, for writing this particular book. Okay, well, how did I get interested in it? In it? Um, well, uh, who hasn't looked at mummies and pyramids and been fascinated by them? Um, I was as a small boy, but I was, I was indulged by this gentleman, Leslie Grinsall, um, 
and uh, we all called him Uncle Leslie. He was the sort of friend of the family, and he was a, a very distinguished Egyptologist. And uh, I would sit with him, and he took me through Gardiner's Egyptian Grammar, uh, the great book of, of um, uh, if you want to learn hieroglyphs. Um, so um, that's Uncle Leslie. This is his book from the 1940s, I think, on the pyramids. I was very lucky to be tutored by this, this gentleman back in my teens. And he got me a job in the local museum that had a very good um, Egyptology section. And I was, God knows why, but I was let loose on, on something called the map collection. Uh, nothing to do with maps, but there were two Mrs. Mapp who in the 1880s gave a load of uh, Egyptian antiquities to Bristol City Museum. And nobody had ever catalogued them. And there was the, the, they knew that there was nothing important in them, so they gave the lot to me and said, catalogue them. And um, so I would sit there typing away on an old typewriter and doing cards. Um, and there's a silly story that I will never forget. Um, uh, in the course of this, I found a mummified foot uh, detached. And um, so I put it on the table and started typing foot, human, mummified, uh, detached. And I measured it, and it was so many centimeters long. And then I thought, well, it's a foot, so I ought to give a shoe size. Um, um, and I slipped off one of my shoes for comparison, slipped the foot into the shoe, uh, and just, I'm not making this up, at that minute, footsteps came down the corridor of the empty cellars of the museum, uh, and it was the, I think it was Georgina, um, my boss, and she sort of took one look at this mummified foot in my shoe and said, that's weird. Um, so, you know, I, 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 was, I was really indulged in, in my interest. And then, uh, after I started studying Arabic, I, I got to know the real-life Cairo. This is Habiba, my favorite Kyrene. And we're on the roof of her house, which, as you can see, is uh, in the shadow of the mausoleum of Pipe Bay. And um, so she, she sort of introduced me to the... To the the living Cairo. And then, about 25 years ago, I came across this, uh, which is the there are two translations of Abdullah's book, and this is the first one, the Eastern Key. So, uh, we'll come back to this a bit later, but I, I seized upon it and read it, and it's got a lovely photographic facsimile of the manuscript, and inspired by this, I wrote this little book, Ghostwriter, um, which doesn't appear on many of my bibliographies. Um, but uh, again, I'll return to this later. But, but let's go back to this book. The East, God knows why they called it the Eastern Key. Um, but uh, let's go back to Abdul Latif's book. So two parts, Ifada and I'tibar. Kitab al-Ifada wa al-I'tibar, the book of edification and admonition. Uh, admonition. So, in other words, uh, informing and warning. And the information bit, uh, it, it, it starts with that dedication to the Caliph, and then there's a kind of general bit on Egypt, and it centers a lot on, on the Nile and the importance of the Nile. Uh, obviously, in Egypt, it's, it, it's what keeps the whole place alive. And from the Nile, which produces all these crops, he goes on to, uh, on to um, plants, uh, the flora and the agricultural products. And, you know, I'm just showing you this, the banana with its, with its bud at the bottom, um, which he calls the mother of the banana. And he, he has several pages of, of minute description, almost as beautiful and as detailed as, as this drawing. He talks, for example, about the, um, uh, the, the, the famous balsam, which was grown in, in Cairo at the time, which supposedly grew up uh, watered by a spring 
that appeared when the Holy Family visited Egypt. And he talked about, he talked about things like these um, jumais, uh, I'm not sure, are they sycamore figs in English? And um, the fact that you have to, uh, the, uh, actually the, the, the word in, in still used these days is chet, uh, circumcision. Um, somebody has to climb the tree and circumcise each fig. Uh, in other words, cut round it, um, because otherwise they don't become sweet. And um, so he talks about plants, he talks about animals. Uh, for example, these poor skinks, which uh, have been long celebrated as a, an aphrodisiac, um, and they're still sold. Or well, last time I was in Cairo, you could still buy a dry skink in, in Khan al-Khalili to pep up your, your marital life. Um, and he talks at great length about, about um, egg factories. Um, and you know, the fact that they're a means of, of hatching eggs by artificial heat. Uh, and there's a wonderfully detailed description of these. Then he goes on to talk about buildings and boats and, and, and dishes and recipes. Uh, one of the, the, the best recipes I've ever come across in any cookbook is for a, a sort of picnic pie, uh, which includes three sheets, and 90 birds of various sorts. It's obviously a very big pie, and the Sultan would, would, would have them made when he went hunting. And um, uh, Abdul Latif says, oh, and if you feel like it, you can add an extra sheep. So uh, it's, it, it, it's really this wonderful description of life, flora, fauna, cookery, everything else. But the, but the star one, uh, the star chapter in the, in the information part of the book is, is on antiquities. So, um, he talks obviously about the pyramids. This is the pyramid of Menkaure, uh, or Michaelinus in, in Greek. Um, and he actually talks as a, uh, an eyewitness about how it got this star. Um, which was uh, somebody sort of bet to be a with Sultan at the time that he, he wouldn't be able to, to demolish it, and that's as far as he got. Um, he saw the Sphinx still with its nose, uh, perhaps not in this sort of Photoshop perfection. Um, but interestingly, it was, it was buried up to its neck. So when he gets the dimensions wrong, the, the imagined dimensions, you have to think he was thinking of it perhaps as a, a standing figure. And he goes to Alexandria, talks about Pompey's pillar. Um, all these are expected, but there are unexpected things. Uh, for example, at, at, at Memphis, there was a, a, a monolithic um, little miniature temple hewn out of a single stone called the Green Chamber which was broken up in the 14th century. And there's a, a lovely description of this by Atalati. And it's gone now. There's just a few bits of it left. Here, this bottom part. I don't know. I couldn't find a decent picture, but you can just see the tops of hieroglyphs. Uh, and, you know, all of this is from this green chamber, which was greatly celebrated at the time. It's now built into a Sufi hospice uh, built by Amir Sheikhoun. Um, and, you know, this, this gaze of his was curious. It, 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 it looks into, into little things that you, you wouldn't, other people don't notice. So he notices things like masonry clamps uh, and, you know, hypothesizes about the kind of metal that they used. And most beautifully of all, he talks about Statuary. And here's a passage, perhaps even about this very famous Colossus of Ramses II. He says, If you look closely at such an idol, um, he calls them Asnan, um, uh, but not in a pejorative sense, if you look closely at such an idol, you'll see with what eloquent proportion the trunk commences of the division of the chest from the neck of the clavicle then how the chest begins to rise at the upper ribs towards the pectoral muscles. 
These ascend further to their apex of the nipple, which is depicted in proper proportion to the whole vast figure. The chest then slopes down to the depression above the sternum and the metasternum, also to the corrugations and the undulations of the lower ribs, all depicted just as in the actual living being. And on and on it goes. I mean, it goes on for several pages. And you can see his huge um, delight, uh, in, uh, his aesthetic enjoyment uh, of, of, of these, these sculptures, which of course comes from him being so interested in, in anatomy. Um, and, and, and it even inspires rhyming prose. Uh, I try to imitate the rhyme in English. The utmost accomplishment, the utmost accomplishment man could achieve and the most perfect embellishment stone could receive. So that rhyming rhythmic prose, Kaja, um, which he uses very sparingly, but he uses it about these um, sculptures. And he talks about the sculptures and the pyramid buildings with their noble in intellects, their pure minds, their enlightened souls. He talks about the people who rob the tombs as ignoramuses and imbeciles, wanton and puerile vandals. So, plenty of people wrote about Pharaonica and um, Egyptian things, Egyptian, going back to Mithrodi in the 10th century, but nobody wrote about them with this wonderful sort of searching eye that loved the, the beauty. And it's all part of what I would, I would dare to call his, his rather modern gaze. Okay. So that's the edification, information, um, the informing. What about the warning? And, well, I didn't know what to show you to go with this, but I've picked out this painting by Goya. And really to go with it, I have to quote from him. Then came the year seven, that monstrous year, that predatory date, seven of lives. And seven is short for 597 uh, AH with, with, uh, in the history calendar, which works out as 1200-1201 AD. And what my translation tries to do there is reflect the fact that in Arabic, um, seb, seven is an alternative vocalization for sabr. Uh, and the sabr is a a beast, uh, particularly a predatory beast. Um, so, you know, really in seven, in Arabic, seven is the number of the beast. Uh, and, and, and this horrible year began in which the Nile didn't rise. So he talks about, um, uh, about the Nile and why it didn't rise. Some of you may have seen this. Uh, it, it's the Nilometer. Um, and I think it was first instituted, was it the 9th century AD? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But it, it, measures, it measures the rises of the, Nile, of the Nile. And when it gets up to 16 cubits, it's called the Ma'a um, Sultan, the Sultan's water. And at that point, you can begin to take um, uh, taxes from the, 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 the farmers. Anything less than that, you can't. And in this year, it didn't, I don't think it got up to 12. And the following year, it was even worse. So you have two years in which the Nile failed to rise. And people hadn't taken precautions to put enough food in store, so the food, the food ran out. And the prices of the staple foods arose and rose, and as always, the poor people suffered, the masakim, uh, the, the paupers, that lower, lowest sort of rung on the social ladder. And it, it really is a harrowing read. I, I warn you if, you, if you, if you want to read this, if you haven't read the book, it's, it, it's, um, it's most disturbing. It's one of the most disturbing things ever written. I'll, I'll just read you one little bit to, to give you an idea. Because this, this famine set off a wave of cannibalism. And um, 
here he is. The story that gained wide circulation was heard out of the prefect's own mouth concerned a woman who had appeared before him unveiled and in a state of shock. She said she was a midwife and that some people had called for her and during her visit had given her a plate of sick badge stew, beautifully cooked and flavoured with all the appropriate spices. When she realised, however, that it was particularly rich in meat and that this meat was different from normal meat, the discovery turned her stomach. She managed to get a word in private with a little girl of the family and asked her about the meat. Oh, said the girl, Mrs. So-and-so, the fat lady, came to visit and Daddy cut her throat. There she is, hanging up in bits. And it's... I mean, it's, uh, you couldn't make it up. Uh, and there's story after story. And I mean, that's one of the more repeatable ones. Um, and, you know, the, the effect on the Mestakim, the, 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 the paupers, the poorest class, was absolutely apocalyptic. Uh, I think in the two years of famine, I've got the number here, during the two years of famine, uh, the Sultan's charitable D1 contributed to. Uh, 110,000 funerals, and those were just the people who, who got a decent burial, and just the ones in Cairo. Uh, so think of the ones across the country. Um, and I, I want to read just one more bit from this very disturbing part of the book, uh, where Abdul Latif visits something that he calls Uskurjit Fir'aun. Now, I, I don't know if any of you Arabic speakers or Arabists know the word asgurja. I had to look it up. Uh, it, it means something like a, a bowl for, pickle, for pickles. Uh, so it's a little bowl. But this was in fact a big bowl. Um, and it's a bit like when there are places in Britain that are, are called things like the Devil's Punch Bowl. Uh, so it's a geographical feature. And he says, we, we emerged into a place called asgurja Peraun. Uh, Pharaoh's pickle bowl. Here we saw every single bit of ground, chock full of bodies and dismembered remains. The dead had taken over the hillocks here so completely that they covered every spot and almost exceeded in quantity the dust of the hummocks. And when we looked down into the Asgurja itself, an enormous depression in the ground, we saw the skulls, white, black, dark brown, stacked on top of each other in layers. To an onlooker, they resembled a newly cut crop of watermelons heaped together at the harvest. I saw them again some days later when the sun had scorched the flesh off them and they had turned white. This time they seemed to me like ostrich eggs piled up. So, it, it, to me, that's an unforgettable image. It, it, it's like watching um, the killing field or. It, it, it sticks in the mind. And there was more horror to come. On top of the famine, there was an epidemic. And uh, we're not quite sure what, what, what the particular disease was, but the, in Alexandria, in one day at its height, there were 700 deaths. And when Ibn Battuta passed through Alexandria in the Black Death, uh, I think there were a 1,000. So it was two-thirds as bad as the Black Death. It must have been something terrible. And then there was an earthquake. And the earthquake called a, caused a, a tsunami in the Mediterranean. I quote Abdul Latif, the waves of the sea piled up and raged. In places the sea parted, and the wave crest rose up like great mountains. Ships ended up aground, and the sea cast many fish upon its shores. And there's an allusion uh, in the Arabic to... Um, the account of the, part, the parting of the Red Sea for, for Moses. And it, it just seemed to him that the whole of the earth, the whole of the earth that he could see was unbalanced. Its humors, its humoral temperament, uh, as a physician of the time would have said, was out of balance. It was out of kilter. So, um, having talked about that sort of pretty first part, uh, the in, uh, informing and, and, and the um, uh, 
horrific second part, the warning, how does he stitch them together? Uh, in, in interesting ways, I believe. Uh, he talks about the, the piles of mummies that he investigated, and then he talks about the piles of the dead from the famine, and he says that the dead of the famine were in a worse condition than the mummies. So, thousands of years hadn't done the work of just a few weeks or months. Um, and most importantly, he, he talks about the Nile. He began with the Nile, and he talks about the Nile, uh, uh, obviously the fertile second Nile, uh, growing all these crops to begin with. And then in the second half, it's, uh, I think the word he, he uses is mahtarak. Um, it's burnt out. Uh, and the whole tragedy, it only ends when, when the Nile flows again. And he says, the river surged with enormous force, one rise following hard upon another, mountains of water all churning together in space. So again, you have mountains of water. We've just had the mountain uh, of water, of waves of the tsunami, and now we've got the, the beneficent mountains of the Nile. And that's where the book ends. So it ends on that, that kind of note. And, and honestly, you read the thing, and you get to the, the Nile flowing again, and you breathe a sigh of relief, because you know that there's hope for Egypt um, and sort of hope for humanity. Um, all right. I said to, at the beginning that he, um, he wrote it, he dedicated it to the Caliph and Nasser. And um, I, I, I wonder if he actually got him a copy. I don't think he did. I think he wanted to present a copy in person to the Caliph. And by the time he got back to Baghdad in 1231, the Nasser had been dead for some years. And um, his, his grandson, Ali Mustansir, was now Caliph. Uh, and, and I like to think that he gave a copy to Ali Mustansir, perhaps angling for a job in the, in the Mustansiri Madrasa, which was brand new at the time. So like the, as I said, the NYU Abu Dhabi of, of the time. But we don't know, and he died in that year. And all we have is that, that single copy that he wrote in Cairo in 1204. And just to talk a tiny bit about the history of, of the manuscript, it, 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 it was found in Aleppo, where uh, quite possibly Abdul Latif took it himself. He lived in Aleppo for many years. And it was. Um, it was bought in Aleppo in the 17th century by um, Edward Pocock, uh, chaplain of the English Turkey merchants. Uh, the, the merchants, and uh, not, not um, poultry salesmen, but um, uh, merchants in the, in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and, and Pocock was their chaplain. He was an Arabist and a Hebraist as well. And he became eventually the first Lordian Professor of Arabic at Oxford, uh, which is why the manuscript is now in the Bodleian Library. And so that's another case. I like to think Abdul Latif would have liked the idea of knowledge moving from land to land. Um, and, well, you might ask, in, in a sense, what, what, what the point of it all is. All right, it's, it's sort of it's interesting to read, uh, it's fodder for libraries, it, um, it gives somebody like me fascinating work to do. But is there, a, it, it, is there a further point to it all, to this book? And do you remember we talked in the conference about relevance? And I think James Montgomery was insistent on the irrelevance of relevance. Uh, and I tend to agree with him. I don't think books need to be relevant. Uh, but I would say that good books are relevant in spite of themselves. And that's really the sort of mark of a great book. Uh, and I think it's the mark of, uh, uh, of this book. And I might not even have noticed it had I not been working on it in, in Sana'a during the war, where people were being killed. And there I was reading about people being killed to be eaten 
um, uh, uh, but people dying of hunger. And of course, in, in Yemen, people were, people are dying of hunger. And it just made me think. I, I know people who've been killed on the front fighting. I don't know anyone who's died of hunger. I just don't know them. As a, as a sort of comfortably off person, praise God, uh, um, uh, I don't know them as But here they are in this book. And he gives them a voice. After what he gives them a certain a voice, he records their sufferings. He actually records what they say in some instances. And um, that, that, that's a point of great importance to me as a historian. That it, 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 it reminds me that I must listen to the voices of the poor who don't usually have a voice. But there's also another point which affects the it affected them then, it affects them now, it affects all of us, uh, even us living in comfort. And that's the fact that Abdul Latif was watching the failure of an ecosystem. Uh, he was watching the failure of the Nile to rise, and he was watching the failure of that whole uh, agricultural system in, in, in Egypt, and he knew that the only hope to mitigate future failure was in science. Was in science in its original meaning of, of knowledge, uh, which, which, which meant the recording and the analysis of data. Now, he wrote another book on Egypt, which seems to have been lost either in his lifetime or soon after. Uh, but he talks about it in, in, in our book, and he says that he had a chapter that has the annual report of the Nile's rises going back hundreds of years. And he says his aim in this was, I quote, to reveal any relationships that might exist between annual data and any symptoms displayed by them. Such information might identify which of the phenomena recur. We would then be able to make the knowledge plus gains available in advance in order to be on the alert and to give warning of foreseeable events. Again, doesn't that sound modern? And, you know, today we need to be on the alert, very obviously, about the whole earth, not just about the Nile. And I feel strongly that this is part of the importance of his book, that it shows us that even then, 800 years ago, somebody was thinking about this. Uh, and I feel strongly as well that if Abdul Latif were with us now, he would be somewhere at the forefront of climate science. He would be collecting data, uh, recommending action, um, and suggesting ways to, uh, to balance the humoral temperament of the planet, as he would have put it. And, um, you know, just think of the four humors and the four qualities and the four. Uh, you know, this is, this is what's wrong with the planet these days. We're, they're not in balance. Um, now, humor, of course, has another, another meaning, and I don't want you to think that he, 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 he was a humorless man. Um, and um, even in the midst of that enormous tragedy, he, he could be funny. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just I have to quote this story. It's where he's talking about one of his colleagues, uh, another physician. Um, and it's sort of laughing in the face of tragedy to stave it off. Um, so he talks about this other physician who uh, was asked by, uh, by somebody to visit a sick person. And off the physician went, uh, and noticed that the, um, the man who'd engaged him was behaving very strangely. Uh, he, he was giving out arms and, and was sort of um, puffing himself up as a great arms giver, but in a rather strange way. And he was taking the position deeper and deeper into this kind of maze of alleyways. And I'll read the, the little story. It's short. Uh, even so, the doctor's mind was put at ease by the lure of good fat fees. And that's another instance where he has a bit of hijack, uh, rhyming rhythmic prose. Eventually, however, when the man led him into a big tumble-down house, his sense of foreboding increased and he paused on the stairs. The man went up ahead of him and knocked on a door. 
Out came a crony of his saying, You've taken your time. Have you caught us a bit of game that's worth the wait? When he heard this, the physician turned to jelly. Luckily for him, there happened to be a window nearby, and he threw himself out of it and landed in a stable, only to find the owner of the stable coming over to him saying, What's the matter with you then? Fearing the worst from the keeper of the stable too, the physician did not let on, but the man said, Don't tell me it's that lot in this house here luring people to the slaughter. And I think that's a consciously funny story told in the, in the, in the face of, of disaster. Um, but okay, just to wind up, because, oh yeah, time is, is whizzing by. Um, are we all right to wind up with why I half expected that I might hear Abdul Latif's voice directly in my house in Sanaa in the dark during our power cut, which began in August 2015 and is still going on. Um, would you believe it? Uh, and um, yeah, well, it's it's a very strange story indeed. And it involves uh, this gentleman, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was very interested in spiritualism, uh, the idea that we can communicate with the souls of the dead via the voices of, of living mediums. Um, and you know those films where you get mediums. Uh, if you've seen the, the brilliant film of Blythe Spirit, the 1940s film, and she says, um, Is anybody there? Is anybody there? And they're all sitting around and trying to, um, Yuhadruna Yuhadruna Arwah. So, uh, 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 and, and this is what spirit, spiritualism is, is, is about, uh, bringing the spirits in. And strangely enough, uh, um, this lady, uh, Miss Etta Vreet, Vreet of Detroit, um, who was a noted uh, medium, uh, was holding a seance, and up popped Abdul Latif. Um, and um, he soon got onto the sort of airwaves of, of seances, and he started popping up left, right, and center. And um, uh, he, 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 uh, Conan Doyle, as you saw, was very interested in spiritualism. And um, uh, Conan Doyle wrote this in 1929. I have been brought into contact more than once with Abdul, and was privileged once to sit for more than an hour listening to his account of his life with anecdotes of ancient Cairo, Saladin, the Crusaders, and many other events which occurred under his own eyes. It was a unique experience to partake of the ripe, gentle wisdom of this great sage, never bitter, never sarcastic, eminently reasonable and courteous, answering through the lips of an unconscious woman. Um, I don't... <laughs> I don't know actually if his contemporaries would have agreed that he was never sarcastic. Some of them thought he was really, really spiky. Um, so, uh, and, and they used to call, some people called, used to call him a, um, a matudjin. A matudjin. Uh, which ought to mean something like the maker or the seller of pardines. You know, those things that you make Jews in. But I think it might have the sense we don't use it anymore, but I might have a sense of something like Mr. Potboiler. Uh, people were kind of envious of him and envious of his writing abilities. Um, but anyway, yeah, back to Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes, spiritualist, with a friend. Um, now, somewhere in a box in England, uh, I, I had a photograph of my grandfather uh, with Conan Doyle in a, in a garden. And my grandfather was quite into spiritualism, so I, I, I wish, I, I never knew him. He died before I was born, but uh, I like to think that he met Abdul Latif as well. And lots of people did. Um, and one of those who did was, was an English woman called Mrs. Ivy Vidian. 
And this is the, from the introduction to that other English version of Abdul Latif's book, uh, the, the one with the red cover, which was published in 1965 by um, George Allen and Unwin in London, a reputable publisher. And this is what Miss, Mrs. Vidian says in her intro. Our first meeting with Abdul Latif was in August 1957, when he spoke to my husband and to me during a conversation with a sensitive Mrs. Ray Welch in London. Since then, we have had many long talks with him through Mrs. Welch and also through Mr. Jim Hutchings. It was not unexpected, therefore, that he should tell us in 1960 that he wished my husband to make a photographic copy of the Bodleian manuscript of Kitabul Ifada. Abdul Latif promised to prepare the way for the accomplishment of this plan, adding later that he would send a translator from Baghdad. Uh, uh, they needed the translator, the Mr. and Mrs. Vidian. They didn't, as far as I can tell, they didn't understand a word of Arabic. Um, and uh, Abdul Latif was as good as his word. And upturned um, somebody called uh, Kamal Hafiz Zand, who was apparently a judge. I've tried to find more about him, I can't. Um, and he apparently helped them translate the book. But I think they got most of their help from Sylvester the Sassi, the, the great French orientalist of, of the 19th century, who um, did the most wonderfully rich and pedantic and thick um, version of Abdul Latif's book. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a footnote on the tree that runs to 30 pages. That's a footnote. Um, and he still doesn't identify what the tree was. Uh, and neither could I in my meager footnote. So, anyway, this was the apparent reappearance of Abdul Latif in the 20th century. And um, you, 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 might, you might feel uh, that you, you, you should be skeptical about this. Um, I mean, Alan and Unwin were the publishers of Tolkien the publishers of uh, Roald Dahl, so they were quite into the fantastical. Um, I think more important than this, uh, Abdul Latif as a good Muslim, uh, uh, first of all, and as a scientist, would have completely pre-proved the idea of his appearing after death. Um, but despite all of this, when I was working on him in, in, in my dark room in the the endless power cut, I longed for him to appear. Did he? Well, uh, not in Sanaa, um, but in 2019, I went to England after an absence of about five years uh, because of the war. And the first thing I did was I went to Oxford. It was November. It was a misty night, and it was dark by the time I got there, and I went straight to the Bodleian Library, and um, uh, Alistair Watson, who, who looks after the Arabic manuscripts, was, was still there. Uh, he was working late, and I hadn't told him I was coming, um, and uh, they called him down, and he sort of looked at me and, oh, it's you. We thought you were... I said he thought I was dead. Uh, I sometimes wonder if I am myself. Um, and then he sort of realized that I'd come to see Abdul Latif. Uh, and, and, and there was the manuscript. And there's nothing like, even you who've worked on manuscripts, you, the, the joy, the excitement, the ecstasy of seeing the real thing after looking at a scan. Uh, looking at that polished paper, at that chiseled script, uh, and here it was, and it was the, it's the only survivor, it's the single known copy, and still there after more than 800 years. So, um, it, it brings to mind what Al-Dahed said, uh, that a book is a silent talker, the speaker who can speak for the dead and yet interpret the living. It brings to mind for me what Milton said, 
books are not absolutely dead things, but do contain a potency of life in them. And I'll give the manuscript the very last word, and this comes from my that little book that I wrote called Ghostwriter, because the manuscript actually spoke to me, spoke through me as, as its medium. Uh, and the manuscript ends up saying this. So, is anybody there? Only us. We books alone are the voices of the dead, of our authors, of Mrs. So-and-so, the fat lady, of the skulls in Pharaoh's pickle bowl, of all the dead from the dawn of writing to yesterday's newspaper crying in the wilderness of the library while famine and pestilence and earthquake and tsunami and war do their worst and always will. Don't think it odd that we don't speak. Don't think it odd that we do speak, only that people don't hear. So, that was Abdelhatif speaking to me in his book, and that is part of the importance of what we do with these manuscripts. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.